1: Interface complete, please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ.
2: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University Talking Technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ and lots of interesting stuff going on in technology, as always, happy birthday to email. Email is now 50 years old. The iPhone has a built-in scientific calculator. What? I had no idea of it. Now, I'm gonna give you a tip this week on what app you should delete from your mobile phone to speed it up and save battery life. And there's a workaround, we can still use that, app, use that device. Use that application, but without the app installed on your phone. Uh, it's, it's a very good tip. And I think everybody's always wanted to know where the word robot came from. Yeah. We're going to go back to the very definition and the, the author who coined that word. This week, we're going to feature the man who is lovingly called the Italian father of the PC. He developed the first personal computer while he worked there for Olivetti there in... Italy. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. An email from Susan in Alexandria. Good morning, Dr. Schertz and Jim. I just read that the Bank of England released a new 50 pound note honoring Alan Turing. Of course, you've already featured Alan Turing in profiles in IT. Uh, But they used a new technology, uh, which they called Polymer. That I went back to the Stratford website uh, and searched for uh, works on polymers. And on April 13th, 2013, you covered the topic, Stanford creates biological transistor. And uh, I ran across that, and I realized that many of those ideas are similar to the techniques they use to make the uh, the latest COVID vaccines. It said Stanford, uh, um, they use the... Um, The cell's environment to store a record of changes that occur, and they store that in the memory of the DNA, and that can trigger some kind of response. And they can use it to make a transistor where the response could be allowing current to flow. So I really don't understand how it went on, but I tell you, I went back and loved listening to it, and it's great that you guys cover all this material on Tech Talk. We appreciate your show, Susan and Alexandria. Well Susan thanks for the feedback. I'm 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 uh, actually amazed you went back into the start for the techtalk.stratford.edu because you can search all of our shows all the way back to 2000 to see what we were talking about back in the day. But it is true DNA is a marvelous structure. I mean each position in the DNA can have one of four bases uh, and that's how it encodes information the ordering of how those bases are set. So that means that each location of DNA is equivalent to two bits of information. So if you look at the length of our DNA with each position corresponding to two bits, it turns out the human DNA is around 720 megabytes. That would actually fit on a DVD. And uh, and it's actually a molecular engine that can split, multiply, and divide, and it actually is the, the boot-up program for the human body. It is absolutely categorically amazing. And we're going to be able to use molecular engines in the future to manufacture things i mean this is going to be the next big breakthrough once we get molecular engines you you know that thing in the uh where you can press a button and you're and and it cooks a hamburger it, it creates a hamburger for you out of nothing kind of like in the that's Jetsons. done with an that's done with a, a molecular engine so that little futuristic device may in fact exist 50 years from now it's going to totally change manufacturing as we know it. And uh, the miracle of what DNA can do as a molecular engine is just the tip of the iceberg. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc Jim and the reverberant Mr. Big Voice. Wow. A major flaw in SMS let hackers take over phone numbers in minutes by simply paying a company to reroute the text messages. Here's an interesting article about the hacker who paid 16 bucks to do it. All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, that story is really true, and it's very alarming. The hacker used a company called Sakari, which helps businesses do SMM marketing and mass messaging. And they used that company to reroute the text messages from a particular cell phone to them. Uh, this company was doing this to, to, to help companies use text messaging, but it's a huge security flaw. Now, this uh, this was an overlooked attack vector, and, uh, and it just lets you know that the unregulated protocol of SMS, uh, you know, has flaws in it. So what this hacker did, he didn't have to hijack the SIM card. He simply rerouted the text messages. And then... He went to specific accounts that had two-factor authentication, and he hacked into them because the second factor authentication would come to him via text message, which he received, and he was able to steal these accounts. And this is the very way that they used like to, uh, like to get into Bitcoin wallets. It's a, it's a huge problem, and he did it totally legally, he used a prepaid card to take over the account. Now, but what he did, he was actually stealing the account of his friend. It was an experiment. And he he basically logged on to his friend's Bumble account, his WhatsApp account, and his Postmates account, all using the two-factor authentication. They then wrote an article about it. And once the wireless companies saw this article... They immediately changed how they handle these kind of requests. And now Verizon, T-Mobile, and AT&T, which uh, had been allowing text enables BYON, that's called bring your own number, BYON. They ha- that's what he was using. That service was a BYON number. They have now disabled Doc, bring, BYON.
1: Bring, bring, how does that work? <laughs> Can you you can select your own authentication numbers. Is that what that
2: what, is? What they did, this company would go to Verizon and say, "We want you to reroute the text messages to this number through our servers, and then we're going to do marketing." I mean, and so Verizon and the carriers would reroute the text message through these servers, and that and that that service was called BYON. In other words, you 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 tell the service what your number is, and you get text messages from that number. And, I mean, this is a major flaw in text messaging. And now, those carriers are no longer going to route any text messages through the aerial link gateway, which was what was doing it. I mean, this was actually quite alarming that this was available and so easily done. So, it was actually not a... It was a a white hat hacker. He was hacking a friend so they could write an article about it to get the wireless companies to close that loop. Uh, We got an email from Roblin in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I installed the kids game on my iPhone. And it teaches them how to do basic math in order to solve a series of mysteries. Now, my daughter turned four, and this this game is between four to six, so I think she could actually do it. So I want to give her the phone so she can play this game. However... I only want her to play this game on the phone. I don't want her to do anything else with the phone. Is there any way that I can limit her access to other applications on the iPhone before I give it to her? Well, the good news is, Roblin, iPhones have a feature called guided access that does exactly what you want. All you have to do, go to your iPhone settings, and you enable guided access. And then after you've enabled it, you simply tell Guided Access what apps you want the person to have when they're using Guided Access. So when you give your phone to your daughter, you just simply activate Guided Access, and she can only use those particular apps. Now, if you want to know more about Guided Access, uh, there's I've got a link here for it, but it's kind of complicated. All you do is go to the Apple website and search for Guided Access and you'll come up with an FAQ that's got all the details on it. Now, by the way, Guided Access also works for iPads. So you could also activate this on an iPad, and it may be easier for her to play the game on an iPad instead of on an iPhone. We got an email from Helen in Rockville. Dear Doc. I got a serious problem on how to fix it. My ex is stalking me on Facebook. Every time I block him, he just opens the new accounts and starts stalking me again. I'm afraid to post anything because he writes nasty comments. What can I do? How can I prevent him from doing this, Helen in Rockville? Well, Helen, unfortunately, stalkers on Facebook are really everywhere, and, they're, and they, they could be dangerous. If this guy's making physical threats, call the police. But if he's just being annoying to you, you can actually make it harder for him to get back on your account. What you got to do, you've got you to adjust your privacy settings so, if you're using, say, the um, your uh, the web version uh, of it that would be on your browser or on your computer, simply click on the account icon in the upper right-hand side. Then click on Settings and Privacy. Then click on Settings, and then there's a uh, there's a Privacy link over in the left-hand column. Click on that, and then you can in the Activity section. You say, who can see future posts, and you just set it to friends. So only friends can see future posts, which means if he's not a friend with a new account, he can't see future posts. Then you can go down a couple of lines and click limit past posts and click limit past posts again. and Then you can say, you only want friends to see past posts. Then as far as being people being able to find you on Facebook, uh, you go down to a section called how people find and connect with you. And you change every option in that to friends of friends. So if he's not a friend of a friend, he can't even he can't even request, make a friend request. But if he is a friend of a friend, he can make a friend request. So be careful that he's not impersonating another friend and you let him back in. But if you go through these changes, you'll probably keep this guy out of your Facebook account for a while. Best of luck with that.
1: If you uh, impersonate somebody on Facebook, can't that get you sent into uh, Facebook prison?
2: Uh, it yeah, should be a I Facebook prisonable uh, offense. Yeah. It could be Facebook prison until you have another account. <laughs> <laughs> Only your account is imprisoned, not the person.
1: Well, it should be the it should be the person too. I think it should be the person, but that's not how it happens. Actions have consequences.
2: I know, I know. But if if he does threaten anything violent, you can get the police involved. Well, that's true. And they they will investigate. Yep, yep. We got an email from Craig in Virginia Beach. Dear Doc and Jim. I, uh, I have a used but working 500-gigabyte hard drive at home and uh, that I could install on my Windows 10 desktop computer, and I'd like to span it with the 750-gigabyte hard drive that's already there. That would give me 1.25 terabytes of space. Uh, so I went to, uh, to Best Buy and talked to the Geek Squad guy, and he said, well, I wouldn't span two hard drives because if one hard drive fails, you, you, lose, you lose the data on everything. He said, that's not a very good way to do it. He says, I would recommend that you not span the two hard drives, but you just buy a two terabyte hard drive and install it. And oh, by the way, I've got a two terabyte hard drive right here that I could sell you. (laughs) And (laughs) now I want to know, was he giving me the truth or is he just trying to sell me a hard drive? (laughs) Craig in Virginia Beach. Well, um, actually, (laughs) the Geek Squad does have a have a reputation for trying to push hardware. That is true. But in this case, he's telling you the truth. If you span two hard drives and one fails, you lose the data across the whole system. So you've basically doubled your risk in terms of a hard drive failure and data loss. I'm thinking uh, hard drives are so cheap, you should just buy a two-terabyte hard drive. And I would not have Best Buy install it. I think you should install it, uh, really. Uh, you'll save a lot of money. You can, you can either... You can go to Amazon and get a 2-terabyte hard drive, and you'll you'll probably get really a good price. I mean, if you would pay Best Buy to span the two hard drives and have them do it, they would charge you more than the cost of a 2-terabyte hard drive. So this is actually cheaper to do for you. So just buy a 2-terabyte hard drive. Then you open up your uh, computer, install it in an open drive bay. Then what you want to do, you want to copy your current hard drive to the new hard drive. And there's a program that's really nice called CloneZilla. CloneZilla. And that will clone the hard drive. So it will copy your 500 megabyte hard drive to the two terabyte hard drive. So use CloneZilla to copy all the contents over there. And then what you want to do, you want to shut down the computer, disconnect the cables from the old hard drive, boot the computer into Windows, you know, boot it up because it will now boot up on on the new hard drive and make sure everything's working as it should be. Once you know you've got all your data and the hard drive's working perfectly with the new 2-terabyte hard drive, you can basically turn your computer down and you can uh, basically reformat the old hard drive. And then you can reinstall it in the computer. And you want to check the BIOS to make certain that you're booting up on the new hard drive, on the two terabyte hard drive, you want to make certain you set that up as the uh, as, as the as the hard drive that you're booting off of. So then, what you'll have, you'll have 2.5 terabytes of hard drive space. Two terabytes will be the bootable drive, and then you've got an extra 500 megabytes, which is a second drive they can use to, to copy stuff to. So you. Like if you wanted to, uh, you got pictures on the main hard drive, you could, you could get a second copy on the other hard drive. And so it just gives you a nice option. But I would not span the two hard drives. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can.
1: You're listening to Tech Talk on Federal News Network. You can hear us on 1500 AM, 1035 FM 2, 1039 FM 2, 1077 FM 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM.
2: Pierre Giorgio Parato is an Italian engineer and inventor who designed the Programma 101, the world's first personal computer. He is affectionately known as the Italian father of the PC. You know, Jim, the PC has many, many fathers. It does, I and I thought we have some,
1: uh, we'd have some appropriate music to play here, some little Italian dinner music while you...
2: Oh, yeah. There you go. Isn't that nice? Oh, Yeah. Well, Pierre was born in Turin, Italy, December 24th, 1930. Turin, of course, is the uh, is the fashion capital now of Italy, and it was ground central for COVID because well, they had all the workers <laughs> working in the factories who were from China, uh-huh. and they had flights back and forth to China. So this is their factory music there in Turin. Is it I really? Just, it, it's it's also good
1: music to find a shroud by. Yes, it, it certainly is. Now, he,
2: gra- he went to Turin Polytechnic and he got a degree in engineering and aeronautical engineering, electrical engineering and aeronautical engineering. Uh, now, uh, after he got his degree, he taught for many years at the same university at Turin Polytechnic and he published several books and he wrote articles about strategy, business organization, and technology. <laughs> well, finally. What in the world happened there? I don't know. I uh, just a little coughing here. Oh, go cough. I don't have a like cough a... button down here, Jim. Um,
1: I know. Well, we'll have to work on that.
2: We're going to have to work on get some high technology down here. So he he got he got fed up with academia and he decided to start a a real job with business. So he he, he went to work for Fiat in aeronautical in the aeronautical research group because he had he had he had, he had, he had also got a degree in aeronautical engineering and so he went to Fiat. And he was—he uh, performed test calculations on supersonic uh, aircraft design. You know, I had no idea that Fiat was working on supersonic aircraft, Jim. I, that, thats this really news to me.
1: That's interesting.
2: Now, back in either. the days, these were very complicated calculations, aerodynamic calculations, and they were performed largely on hand-operated mechanical calculators.
1: I'm going to look <laughs> up something here.
2: Op- and this is when mm-hmm. Pierre said, "You know." there's got to be a better way than this. So in 1957, he left Fiat and he joined Olivetti. Now, this was the Italian firm that launched the country's first typewriter factory back in 1908. They were absolute leaders in mechanical devices, typewriters, mechanical calculators, and he went to work for them in uh, 1957. Now, Olivetti... Wanted to be an innovator again. They were a pioneer when it came to typewriters, but they wanted also to be pioneers when it came to electronic computers because computers were now just being developed in both the United States and Britain. So uh, Perotto, when he when he went to the uh, when he went to Olivetti, he worked on the uh, on the first fully transistorized mainframe computer in the world there at, uh, that, uh, at, um, at Olivetti, it was called the ILEA 9003. And that launched in 1959. Is why he, he was thinking about, well, this is pretty good. I'm here working on computers. We just launched a mainframe. We are ready. Good. We are, we are good to go. The next year, 1960, the, uh, Andriano Olivetti, the the firm's president, died. Mm. And Olivetti went into a deep financial crisis. And the CEOs, the next CEO, had the brilliant idea, let's get rid of all this electronic stuff, like (laughs) computers, and let's go back to our base, mechanical machines like typewriters, and we will prevail. Well, that was kind of stupid, actually. Well, Perotto was then, because they eliminated his division, he was appointed as head of the mechanical design division at Olivetti's headquarters. And he's thinking to himself, this is just stupid. (laughs) How could these guys stop working on computers just as computers are going to take over? So what he did, he did a Skunk Works project. He said, I don't care what these guys have to say. I'm going to keep working on my computer. So he started working on a clandestine project to build an electronic calculating machine. Now, its nickname was Peratina. Peratina. Uh-huh. His name is Perato. So it's named after him. It's like a, like a female Peratino. That was the need... nickname of his mach- of his
1: machine. You're talking Italian again. There we go. There you go.
2: Peratino, that's the nickname of the machine. Now uh it was affectionately known that was the code name. You see, it was a clandestine operation. They said, Well, I'm gonna work on the Peratino today. So <laughs> by 1962, they had achieved some remarkable success in the development of this machine. And he managed to convince the management to officially endorse it. So it came out of the Skunk Works and it became an official project. And the company didn't like Perattino as the name because it shouldn't be named after some guy, it should be like more official. So they changed the name to Pro- Programma 101. <laughs> and he was a, which I think Perattino was, what was was, uh, was a much better name, but they, uh, Programma 101, and he was appointed officially now team leader. Now, this used uh, an arithmetic, in Italian, it's arithmetico logica unit, Uh (laughs) arithmetic and logic unit. It was built (laughs) with discrete transistors because back then we didn't have integrated circuits yet. So they were building this thing out of discrete transistors. Uh, It used a mercury relay in order to provide uh, storage, short-term storage. And uh, it it could store this little storage, this little delay, this little mercury delay circuit could store 10 records, 22 digits each. Uh, And it it, um, and it was, uh, you know, it was it was able to, uh, uh, you know, or a chain of 24 instructions. That was just short term memory. Now, in addition to arithmetic operations, it could run. they They had they had a programming language that had 16 instructions in it. They could also transfer data between registers using conditional and non-conditional jumps. Like a conditional jump, what that means, if this condition is true, jump. If this condition is not true, don't jump. That's what that means. Where non-conditional jump, it just says jump, and you jump, and there's (laughs) no condition to be evaluated. (laughs) Are you familiar with the uh, non-conditional jump statement, Jim? I am not, no. (laughs) No, it's just, Jim,
1: jump. (laughs) Oh. I'm sorry, I'm still seated. That's I guess right. I failed. Okay. I, get, said, I don't get a gold yeah. star now, today. If,
2: if you were in your car, don't jump. Don't that would jump be a no. that would be a conditional statement. Now, right. now the success of the machine also was based on its longer-term storage. It used a magnetic card to read and record uh, records. So because it it would it was using for business applications so it had a magnetic card to permanently store records, or it could be temporarily, but usually permanently store records. And it also used a magnetic tape where you would store the program on it, and the magnetic tape could hold 120 instructions. So this was the beginning of a real computer system as we knew it. And that storage on the magnetic card, uh, you, you could say that's similar to a floppy disk where the disc is spinning, as opposed to having a flop, uh, you know, as opposed to having a a fixed magnetic card. So they had all the elements built into this system to be quite powerful. Now, he also developed a programming language. He said the programming language has got to be easy to use, because I don't want a bunch of like lab technicians in white coats to have to program this thing. I want the admin assistant, to be able to program it if she's having to do payroll. I want to make it simple. So he wrote a programming language that was very intuitive and easy to use. It it turned out to be very popular. And soon there was an extensive library of programs that had been written by users, and they had stored these programs on the magnetic cards. And they had math calculations, civil electrical engineering, business admin, and finance. I mean, it was really taken off. This guy was really an innovator. Now, they launched it in 1964, and it was featured at, at, in the, at Olivetti's New York Business Equipment Trade Show in 1965. And it was a roaring success. Now, uh, regular computers, I mean big computers, that w- would cost like $25,000 back in the day, but the Programma 101 was available for only $3,200. So... A lot of people bought it. In 1969, it was used by NASA in planning the Apollo 11 space mission because they they were trying to get rid of all their manual calculations. Uh, By the early 70s, almost 44,000 of these machines had been sold, mainly in the U.S. market. Then they had a subsequent design, the Olivetti P6060. Now, this was the first personal computer with an integrated floppy hard drive. So finally they got rid of the magnetic card and they put in a floppy disk. And that, uh, that was, that was the Olivetti P6060. Now in 1967, he was appointed head of the company's research and development division. And what he did as head, he canceled that decision to get rid of computers. And he transformed the company from a mechanical device company to a major player in electronic systems and electronic devices. Probably saved the company, right? I think he did save the company, yeah. I mean, here's a case where a guy had a passion, he followed the passion, and he innovated despite the fact that the CEOs of the company did not have a mindset to innovate. That's why I wanted to feature this guy. From 1980 to 1993, he was president of Olivetti's consulting uh, subsidiary, Elia Spa, and uh, in 1991, he won the coveted Leonardo da Vinci Award from the Leonardo da Vinci Museum of Science and Technology in Milan for Programma 101 Design. He retired in 1993 and lectured at the Turin Polytechnic. He wrote numerous books on strategic management. His last five years were spent uh, as president of a, a Finza Consulting, which was a company that he started with a friend of his, he was married. He had two sons, uh, and he settled in Liguria after his retirement. He died in Genoa in 2002 at age 71. So there you go. Everything you'd want to know about Pierre Giorgio Parato, uh also known as the Italian father of the PC.
1: You want to know why you didn't know that Fiat was involved in aviation? Yes, well, it's because they went out of business in 1969. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Apparently, they weren't very successful at it. I thought I'd heard somewhere that they made <laughs> aircraft engines because there are some Italian aircrafts. Uh, I yeah, know there's something not- that's made. It's a light aircraft called a part Navion, I think is what it's called. Wait a minute, I need, need the music. There you go. And uh, it's a it's a very small twin engine aircraft used over here, Uh, but uh, Fiat Aviazione went out of business in 1969. Thank you for that information. I had no idea, Jim. I'm here to help. I'm here for the obscure and the who cares part of the show. Yes. All right. (laughs) Uh, stay tuned. We're going to play the uh, pop quiz coming up in just a second. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 a.m., 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, 107.7 FM HD 2 Southwest of Washington in Loudoun County
0: 104.5 FM.
3: Featuring Mr. Big Voice with musical guest the Stratford University Junkyard Band and your host Dr. Richard Shirts. Oh yes, thank you, thank you, got you got
1: very ball. much. You let him go on a little longer than usual today. Uh, well, I, I just enjoy the
2: applause, Jim. I just, I just like to soak up all that applause.
1: We're we checking vaccine cards before they come in now.
2: So. Oh, that's very good. I think yeah. that's extremely think sit important. Closer together. It is. Now, you know, and I'm going to welcome them back to Classroom of the Airways, but now I'm going to see whether they've actually been listening uh, to the show. If. Give them a small pop quiz. And if, if they get the right answer to the pop quiz, they'll get an A-plus for today's show, plus uh, tickets to fine dining at one of our dining rooms when they open, and I think we're probably getting pretty close to that good. once we... Once we get the old vaccines out there. <laughs> Earlier in the show, I was talking about Pierre Giorgio Perotto. He, of course, is the Italian father of the PC. Now, after, and he was working at Olivetti when he did, when he when uh, uh, we did this. But in 1960, Olivetti, they actually shut down the entire computer division because they thought, the CEOs thought that mechanical devices were really the future. Uh, now... Pierre Perotto absolutely disagreed with that. So he started working on a personal computer, a handheld calculator that was programmable, secretly. He had Skunk Works. And this particular device, while it was a secret project, had a very interesting nickname that everybody affectionately called it. What was the nickname of that device while it was being secretly developed within Olivetti?
1: This is not an essay question.
3: If you know the answer to today's question, get out of your Easter basket and give us a call. Dialing from west of the Rockies, 877-936-9333. If you're standing next to a pile of hollow chocolate Easter bunnies east of Plandale, Church, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're stress-testing your aircraft in Canada... Call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized hourly using Reese's Peanut Butter Eggs, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's our Easter Bunny, Dr. Richard Schertz.
2: Well, thank you very much, and I certainly... You know, Jim, it is hard to give this show dressed up in an Easter Bunny outfit... Yeah, but I'm doing it. I'm doing it despite all the challenges.
1: And you deserve
2: all of our admiration for it. And the one thing I discovered is I can wear my Easter bunny outfit to the store, and I don't have to put on a mask. Because you're because, wearing a fake because bunny. Because the bunny hand. outfit is the mask. Yes. Right. Now, let's give the tip of the week here. You know, down at the uh, down at the the Bay House by the water, I've got iPhone cables that will occasionally. Uh, they will occasionally corrode it on, on the, the – they'll, they'll get oxide on them. And then it's – then they're not reliable. Have you ever had an iPhone cable, Jim? You plug it in one way and it charges, plug it in the other way it doesn't charge?
1: I was looking ahead at this and I noticed, yes, I've had this problem. And I thought it was – I figured it was probably a short somewhere in the cable. And based on, you know, you get some twisting around where the, the cable goes into the um, into the plug itself. I figured maybe there's a short and it only works when it's bent a certain way. But now you've
2: – Well, if you if – you- I started looking at these cables and usually there's a little discoloration in them yeah, in, the t- yes. in, the, in the thing. And so it's actually oxide it's corrosion. So I ordered for $14 deoxit D5. Now this deoxid D5, this actually removes corrosion. Now, now if you don't want to spend $14, you get a pencil and, and an eraser and you can just erase the con erase over the contacts and f- try to rub it off. Would but what of- I like about this deoxid D5, like, if you've got a, a like a like an amplifier pot that that's noisy, you can spray some of that in that pot and it will just clean it right up. You'll get rid of that static when you change the volume. Or if you've got a dimmer switch that's kind of wacky yeah you you can actually clean it up so there are a lot of places where you can clean up contacts clean up circuit boards with this deoxid d5 so now i'm going to go back to this drawer of bad cables i got down here at the bay house and clean them up with this thing deoxid see what works
1: and what doesn't could could you theoretically could you use a q-tip and isopropyl alcohol for the same thing would that work
2: probably you could yeah Yeah. you could try it yeah i haven't tried it
1: yet
0: you, I'll,
2: could, I'll, you could run that
1: experiment. I'll run yeah, that before. side
2: of the experiment. Okay. Russco Labs. This is something that I just discovered this week. The iPhone has a built in scientific calculator. What? I had no idea of it. Really? Now, Jim, you can do this. Open up the calculator on your iPhone. To find my phone. Hang you, on. You hold it vertically, and you've just got a regular old calculator. Yes. Which is how I always look at it. Turn your phone on its side in the landscape mode, and it turns into a scientific calculator.
1: Look at same that. application. Wow!
2: I just discovered that. Probably by I
1: accident, mean, right?
2: It, yeah, it was by accident. They put that feature in back in two thousand and eight. That's so. I'm that's only wacky. 13, I'm only thirteen years late to the party, <laughs> and they put it in with iOS two, version two. And if you how had... it unlocks all kinds of functionality, like adding numbers to memory, parentheses, exponents, all those trig functions, it's got arc signs, E, log, natural logarithms, logs to the base. It's got everything that engineers just love, and it's right there built into the calculator application.
1: And if you hadn't <laughs> told me, I'd gone the rest of my life without knowing this. Yeah, now, now, listen, Jim,
2: now when you go to a cocktail party, you can show people that, and you will be king of the
1: party. By the time we get back to cocktail parties, <laughs> I may be in a nursing home.
2: Oh, yeah, that's I mean, true. That's, I, I forgot yeah, about it's that. Yeah, we've got the
1: whole pandemic thing going on. Okay, right, we're go to a Zoom party. Uh, yes. And show zoom, off. Show oh. off
2: at your Zoom party. Got
1: it. Okay, hang on. Ender is running in here, and he has the information. Mask up. Ender's in. Ender's out. Mask off. Let's play the music, <laughs> shall we? We have somebody who'd like to play our little game, Let Us Go To Line. Oh, wait a minute. I'm going to say this in Italian. Riga numero una. Oh, very you good. You like that? This is uh, yes. Ann calling us from Fredericksburg. Ann, good morning. How are you?
3: Buongiorno. I'm just uh, fine.
1: Very good. <laughs> very good. Oh, excellent.
2: Earlier in the show, I talked about Pierre Giorgio Perato, He, of course, is the Italian father of the PC. When he was working on his uh, original uh, programmable calculator in the skunk works here at Olivetti, what was the affectionate name that everyone gave it?
3: It was ferratina. Oh, that That is so good. I
1: think we need to give Ann the prize there, maybe two, because of the just the perfect pronunciation. Yes. Ann, thanks for listening. Thanks for playing. And uh, we'll get that prize right out. And hopefully, soon you'll be able to have your free lunch at Stratford University. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on 1500 AM, 1035 FM HG2. FM HD 2, and now southwest of Washington on 107.7 FM HD 2. In Loudoun County, listen to us on 104.5 FM.
0: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
1: Observations from the bunker. Yes. Maybe when you get some money from your non-fungible token, you can fix the door.
2: I'll work on that. You know, okay. Jim, maybe I'll sell the door as a non-fungible token.
1: <laughs> or maybe you'll get a shot and can you can take the door off the hinges. Yeah, that might
2: be it. Well, you know, today, uh, this week uh, in the bunker, I started thinking about the culture of innovation. Look at what happened to Olivetti. They, you know, the, the visionary president died and immediately the finance people canceled the one thing that gave them hope for survival, and they went back to the tried and true product that was about ready to become obsolete. So they obviously did not have a culture of innovation there, yet there was one man in the organization that did. So I went back and I, I, I thought I would, uh, you know, so I went back and looked at some of the research that Gary Pisano had done. He's uh, at, with the Harvard Business School, and he looked at what characteristics the companies have to have, if they want to foster, a culture of innovation? And he came up with five things, which I thought were kind of interesting, and I'll share them with you. Number one, you must have a tolerance for failure, but not a tolerance for incompetence, okay? Mm-hmm. So if somebody fails because they just can't do the job, they're out of there. If yes. they fail because... They tried something that was very difficult and they just didn't get over the finish line. That's okay.
1: Mistakes are it's, made to learn from, right?
2: Exactly. And so innovation involves exploring the unknown. So it's not always surprising that you're going to fail, you know, a, a number of times. And like you tolerate that, but you just don't tolerate incompetence. So there's a balance here. You've got the good and the bad. You favor, you allow failure, but not incompetence. You have to have a willingness to experiment, but then you're highly disciplined. I mean, you want to embrace experimentation. Uh, You've got to be comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty. The willingness to experiment, though, does not mean that you're just some third-rate abstract painter randomly throwing paint on a canvas. (laughs) Without discipline, almost anything can be justified as an experiment. So you have to have the discipline to pick the right experiments. You've got to have a psychologically safe but brutally candid environment. Uh, you have to you have to be able to tell people they're wrong. Uh, you have to have a climate where people feel comfortable telling the truth, and that there will be no retribution. But it but it's a two way street. If the boss can tell you candidly what he thinks you're doing wrong you can also tell the boss what he is doing wrong. That type of sharing of candid candid feedback is extremely important. Uh, Unvarnished candor is critical to innovation because it means that the ideas will evolve and improve rather than stay stagnant. You have collaboration, but you've got individual accountability. You want to collaborate, you want to get ideas, but in the end, one person makes a decision and they're accountable for their decision. Like, for instance, Amazon Jaffe, who started the the Amazon Web Services, he collaborated with all the computer science departments within Amazon when he came up with the first product for Amazon Web Services, but he committed to those decisions, he was accountable for those decisions, and so collaboration is not consensus. Collaboration means you try to get the best of the ideas, but somebody, makes, somebody has to make the decision, and they have to be held accountable. And finally, you need flat but strong leadership. Now, what that means, a culturally flat organization means that people are given the latitude to make decisions, voice their opinions, and deference is granted on the basis of competence, not title. So people that have to go through the chain of command and you can't talk to somebody in the other group, all that's out the window. You can talk to anybody that you want to. Culturally flat organizations typically respond more quickly to rapidly changing circumstances because the decisions are decentralized. So if a company has these five traits, tolerance for failure, but no tolerance for incompetence. Willingness to experiment, but highly disciplined. Psychologically safe, but brutally candid. Collaboration, but with individual accountability. And finally, flat, but strong leadership, they're on the way to creating a culture of innovation. How to speed up your mobile phone. There's probably an app on, on your phone which is slowing your phone down. It is eating up battery life. It is sending out all kinds of data and sharing all kinds of data about you and what you're up to. And it's an app that you really don't need because you can find a way without using the app and not use any capability. That app, of course, is Facebook. Facebook is a resource hog. It eats a lot of battery capacity and it also slows down the phone because it's sending data back and forth all the time. If you uninstall your Facebook app, you will have no, you will reclaim phone capacity. But, they, but you say, but what? I love Facebook. I like you to go on Facebook. Here's the secret. Open up your web browser. Go to Facebook.com in your browser. It could be Safari. It could be Chrome. Log into your account, and the entire... Uh, the entire capability of your Facebook is then delivered via the browser. So you can simply make Facebook.com one of the favorites in your browser. And then when you want to go to Facebook and look at all those funny cat pictures and movies, whatever you look at on Facebook, (laughs) you simply can open up your browser, click on Facebook.com, you know, it's one of your favorite sites, and boom, you've got Facebook. The good news is when you're not using Facebook, it's not taking all your critical resources. I've done that and I got no trouble if somebody tells me they got something on Facebook, I can get to Facebook in a snap. I use Safari on my on my iPhone. So there you go. Tip of the week. Okay. Let's look at the origin of robot I mean, it's 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 almost like well, maybe we've it, it feels like we've had that word around forever, but we actually, Ever it since wasn't robots came until along 1920, scene. robot it's relatively newcomer to the English language. It's the now it's the brainchild of a Czechoslovakian playwright, novelist, and journalist. He was named Karol Kapek. Karol Kapek He introduced it in a play in 1920 and the name of the play was Rossum's Universal Robots. Now, robot is drawn from the old Slavonic word robata, robata, which means servitude, forced labor, or drudgery. Now, robots perform all the work that humans prefer not to do, and soon the company was inundated with orders for uh, you know for more uh, you know more versions of his play, now early drafts of his play in the early drafts of his play Kap- Kapok- Kapik Kapik named these creatures he didn't call them robots he called them labori 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 l a b o r i that's after the Latin root word for labor, but he worried that using a Latin word like labori would uh, would sound too bookish, so his brother Joseph suggested that he use that he used the word based on uh, rob, robota, robota. He said that sounds much better, and so he opted for robotti or in English robots. So there you go, robots started in 1920. That word, email, email. We all we all love no one loves email. Email is now it. 50 years old. If you can imagine, Jim, half a century ago, an MIT graduate, Ray Tomlinson, became the first person to transfer a message from one computer to another, although it would be years before we refer to this practice as email. It wasn't called email then, back then. Now, Tomlinson worked for an engineering firm, Bolt, Bernick, and Newman, uh, BBN, Sounds like a and law they a, firm. They had a contract, Bolt, Baronek, and Newman, and they and they, uh, they had a contract with U.S. Department of Defense to help build the ARPANET, which is a precursor to the Internet. And uh, at the time, computers were isolated from one another. They were extremely expensive, and they were used by maybe 10, 10 20 different people. And, and, they, and, and you would want to talk to some of the other users so you could drop a note in their mailbox— Now, with the arrival of the ARPANET, you roughly had 20 machines connected, and you were used by more than 1,000 people, so it didn't make sense to just drop a note into a subdirectory for somebody to read. You had to get a, a better way to do that. And so Tomlinson came up with the idea that he would glue together a program called the ARPANET Send Message Utility with the file transfer program that he'd been working on, and he used this creation to... Fire an email into the in- inbox on another machine, and what he did, he separated the username uh, and the destination address, which was the uh, destination of the other machine, with the ampersand symbol. So it would be rsers ampersand stratford.edu, and so he basically created the first the first email format. And so it started out they would just communicate all within the same machine. And you would just send a message to somebody's inbox on their machine. You didn't need any then. You just you just you just copy the file and put it there. But what when you had twenty machines, you had to find a way to put the document in the inbox on another machine, and that's where he came up with the format for the email. So so we sent the first email back uh, back around 1971. Uh, roughly since that time, 306 billion emails have been are sent and received each day in 2020. Mm. Each day, wow. 306 billion emails. Uh, probably 300 billion of them are spam. <laughs> <laughs> now projections suggest that this will rise to 375 billion by 2021. Now, 20 years ago, uh, they N- Nathaniel Borstein created the mime. Now this isn't for pantomime, this is the multi-purpose internet mail extension, and that allows you to send pictures, or you could send music. So the first mime attachment was sent in 1992, and it was a picture of a barbershop quartet that was in the lab that created the mime protocol, and these guys had their own name called the telephone cords. And so we sent a picture of the telephone cords along with an audio of the telephone cords, and hopefully we
1: have that somewhere on our. We, we do. Computer. And Here it is. Daisy. Daisy. Nope, that's oh, not wait it. A minute. Al took over the computer there. Hal took <laughs> over the computer there for a minute. We we do have it. You know, there's nothing like a really good barbershop quartet. Yeah, on a that, this, these
2: guys—you uh, uh, know—it just brings tears to my eyes hearing that hearing that barbershop quartet <laughs> well,
1: thing. There, you know, for a minute, it, it did remind me of Hal there for just a second. So, it, it's, and he did take over. Wait a minute, there he is. Doesn't, doesn't it remind you?
3: Oh just, yeah, that was just like uh,
2: him. Hal, you uh-huh. on his last gasp trying to stay alive. There. <laughs> Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalkinstructor.edu, at and we'll get back to you as soon as we can.
1: That's it for this week. See you next week for more Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network.